Welcome again to Grace Community Church. My name is Brad Talley. I am the teaching elder here at Grace. We, If you are here for the very first time, and I think some of you are, although sometimes I ask, is this your first time? And people say, I've been coming for six months. So obviously you have not taken me for a steak dinner yet. But <clears throat> if it's your first time, we are in a 10-week study in the book of Job. Um, and I, my heart is just appropriately very heavy this morning. I mean, I, I, there is so much suffering in our body. And wouldn't it be interesting if we just took the time and every single person could tell what's difficult for you now? For those of you who are a good bit younger and I, you know, say, hey, you have you just think you've suffered. You wait till you don't. Please don't misunderstand me. Whatever you're going through right now is the most maybe some of you are going through the most difficult thing you have ever been through. And you feel great sorrow or sadness. Um, the only thing about being older is that you just have more time to suffer more. And this life is just full of suffering. And so wouldn't it be interesting to go around and every single person says, this is the big thing. And if you were to say, oh, nothing, everything's pretty good. You're suffering from delusion. You know? No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Listen, you've got to just thank the Lord for those times and rejoice when you have those times and, 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 and not be waiting for the other shoe to drop, but just to say, God has given me this season of, of just joy and a picture of what, just a teeny taste of what heaven is going to be like. You know, there's probably, there's not one thing that we're suffering from today that's not somewhere represented in here. It, 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 over and over and over, you just read through Scripture and you see people's sufferings. But you see an entirely different response to suffering after Pentecost than you saw before. All of a sudden, there is an understanding and a hope and a perspective about suffering that didn't exist before that time. Our study today is on perspective. I don't know about you. I think one of my spiritual gifts, I, by the way, I don't think all the spiritual gifts are listed in Scripture. I think they're representative and that there are other spiritual gifts that we have. I think one of my spiritual gifts is putting two and two together and coming up with six or seven. You know, any, anybody else have that gift? You know, you, you size up a situation and, and typically I'm pretty good at sizing. I really think so. Self-delusion again, maybe. But you size it up and you're just completely wrong when you see the whole picture. How many times have you said, oh, yeah, I'm telling you. And then, you know, and it goes along. And then six months later, you get some bit of information that you didn't have before. And it's like, oh, I was wrong. Then you have a choice of admitting you were wrong. And if you've said something or done something, go in and apologizing asking for forgiveness or, you know, continuing, well, uh, okay, that, yeah, but still, I'm telling you. Well, 
Job's friends had sized up the situation. And they just knew that Job had sinned. And they persisted in their assumptions. And Job did the same thing about God. He made unfounded assumptions and he was willing to die with those assumptions. In fact, he thought he was going to, but he said, that's all right, I will die with my integrity. God is mistreating me. Job's understanding of the way God works in the universe was pretty simple. Obey God and be blessed disobey God and be punished and here he has been essentially obeying God and he's being punished so the equation didn't work it's not that Job claimed to be sinless early in the book we see him offering sacrifices for his own sin and for the sin of sin of his children Lord in case they've sinned please accept this sacrifice I recognize that there has to be a price for sin and you accept this sacrifice as payment so Job acknowledged his own sin and the sins of his children but overall Job was a pretty good guy and he could claim to be blameless just like Paul did in Philippians chapter 3 before he met Jesus hey Concerning the law, I was blameless. I did all the outward stuff. You couldn't point to anything in my life and say, you have sinned, you... Well, of course, you can't equate for, for, for pride and for arrogance and anger, those kinds of things that are kept under wraps. Paul thought he was in pretty good standing with the Lord before he met Jesus. Job's take on the law is pretty much the same as our take on the law. For those of us who believe the gospel, well, the law can still be a problem. Why? Because we're masters at putting two and two together and coming up with six, seven, or eight. Lord, Look at all I've done for you. Look at how badly my neighbor acts and and talks about you. And yet he or she is blessed and I am suffering. How is this fair? How is it fair that this one couple has their fifth pregnancy and they didn't plan for this and they didn't want it and we can't get pregnant for anything? How is that fair? How is it fair? And you just fill in the blanks. We can always, always do it. And, and you know what? I'm, I'm thankful when you tell me I am angry, I'm frustrated with God. Because how is this fair? Because you can't really get at the matter until you acknowledge where your frustration and your hurt and your pain is directed. It's at God. This morning, in week eight of our 10-week study of Job and suffering in view of the cross, we are finally beginning to get a little bit of perspective. Well, actually, we've been seeing this perspective all along, but now we're bringing it all together into one place. Job's three friends have judged and condemn Job. Job, for his part, has responded with a defensive spirit and outright bitterness, though his complaints are far more frequently directed toward God than they are at his friends. 
You know, they judge him. They come at him, and Job essentially says, you're an idiot. You're an absolute idiot. God, why have you done this to me? It's kind of the way Job acts. Along the way, both Job and his friends spoke better than they knew, although Job spoke much better than his friends did. Today, we're introduced to another individual or another character in this story, a young man named Elihu who speaks for six chapters, 32 through 37. Now, I'm going to guess when we started the book of Job, you said, Job I know, Job's wife I know. I know about the debate in heaven between God and Satan. I, I actually, I've heard of Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar. Who's this Elihu character? He just sort of comes out of the middle of nowhere. And, and, and at the end of, of Job, God sums everybody up. He, he sums everybody's position up, except for Elihu's. He kind of like he appears and then he's gone. So what are we going to do with this guy? If you think Job as a whole is difficult to understand, Elihu is quantum mechanics on steroids. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is our mixed metaphor for the day. (laughs) Hardly anyone knows what to do with Elihu. Again, God's going to rebuke Job. He's going to really rebuke Job's three friends. But Elihu just kind of appears, and then he's gone. See, the trouble is that Elihu... Sounds an awful lot like Job's friends, though we must confess it in chapter 37. Some of his words sound a lot like God. Some of the things that he says about God are the things that God says about himself, but not everything. Last week, I encouraged you to, 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 to purchase Christopher Ash's commentary on Job. Ash has a very interesting take on Elihu and one that makes a great deal of sense to me. I don't know if the home group leaders have been reading along those lines, but his fingerprints, Christopher Ash's fingerprints are all over this message uh, this morning. Um, in, in addition to considering Elihu's comments, we're going to look at some of the beautiful truth that Job expressed along the way. Even though when he spoke, his statements were laced with bitter frustration. He tells this beautiful truth, and then he says, so it doesn't make sense to me, or this is what I need desperately, but you withhold it from me, God. Job's frustration emanated from a heart that felt estranged from a holy God a holy God, think about this, who somehow was not doing right by Job. Any way you look at it, there's a great deal of New Testament truth in Job, and we understand it is it as such on this side of the cross only. Job had no hope, and God didn't explain himself fully to Job, as we will see next week. But we understand it. Since we will be here and there in Job today, we're not going to stand for the reading of Scripture just yet. We're going to stand for reading of Scripture at the very end of the message, but not right now. Before we dive into these specific passages, though, (coughs) let's ask the Lord to open our hearts to his word. Let's pray.
Father, we confess that so much of life does not make sense, and especially in a day and age when we have so many resources to keep suffering and pain and discomfort at bay. And when we are told repeatedly that we deserve anything we want, it's really tough when life doesn't add up. And we confess that we are often guilty of doing the math and finding the wrong answer. Your word corrects that, though, Lord. And I pray as we hear this beautiful gospel truth in this Old Testament book that is just laced with despair, that our hearts would find comfort that our hearts would find expressions of praise to a God who has a plan and who has provided a mediator, an advocate for us in Jesus. May we see him and lift him up and exalt him this day. And it's in his name that we can come to you And that we ask these things. Amen. For he is not a man as I am, Job says, recognizing that I have no way to deal with him. If it were anybody in the flesh, I could make some kind of approach and deal with this. Let's talk this out man to man, face to face. He's not a man as I am that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both and say, men, let's work this out. Let him take his rod away from me. And let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him. For I am not so in myself. This is the first of several comments that we're going to encounter this morning in which Job spoke better than he knew. Job 32 to 35 builds into the hope that is expressed a little bit later in 16 verses 18 to 21. But then... This next text reminds us that many Old Testament saints, especially in the early days in which Job lived, uh, did not have a good grasp of what happens after death. And the underdeveloped concept of the afterlife worked against Job. I will go to the grave and what is beyond that? 16, verse 18. O earth, cover not my blood and let my cry find no resting place. This is kind of the cry of of Abel when when Cain killed him and God came to Cain and he said, where's your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And God says, his blood cries out against you. And Job is saying, I have been wronged and may my blood cry out even now. Behold, my witness is in heaven. And he who testifies for me is on high. Certainly not a bunch of, amongst this rabble that's coming at me as they are. 
My friends scorn me. My eyes pour out tears to God. That he would argue the case of a man with God. As a son of man does with his neighbor. For when a few years have come, I shall go the way from which I shall not return. When it's done, it's done. My witness is in heaven, and if he does not speak for me, there's no hope for me. Chapter 14. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service I would wait till my renewal should come. You would call and I would answer you. And you would long for the work of your hands. For then you would number my steps. You would not keep watch over my sin. My transgressions would be sealed up in a bag. And you would cover over my iniquity. Even though Job doesn't get it, he's expressing a hope against all hope that there is hope. In fact, the truth expressed in verses 16 and 17 anticipates anticipates a breathtaking level of forgiveness. You know what's really sad? Most people don't know that they need to be forgiven. Most people have never seen themselves up next to the glory of God. Look, when the angels came over and over, what's the first thing out of their mouths almost? Fear not. And it's like, (laughs) easy for you to say. This is just an angel. This is not God. When you're standing before a holy God, I didn't cheat like my neighbor down the street did. That's not going to do. Job, as good a man who has ever lived, is longing for this breathtaking level of forgiveness. And then in Job 19, the truth that means so much to believers, even though Job had no idea how beautifully he spoke. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. This is not the end. Whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me and he goes right back into the complaints. Ezekiel and James both mention Job in a very positive manner. James says that Job persevered. Now we know that Job had a bad attitude and a smart mouth. You've known people like that. Probably not people as good as Job, but (coughs) I look at one in the mirror quite a bit, you know. Uh, Job steadfastly hoped that God would speak to him and all would be explained. He goes on and on. We have no idea how long this all took place. Most often in Scripture, wherever you see these kinds of complaints, this isn't, you know, like Paul said three times, I prayed that the thorn in the flesh, you know, I doubt he was saying, okay, I'm going to do it once kneeling, once standing, and once like this, you know. I mean, it, it was 
protracted periods of time, most likely. And this could have gone, we don't know how long this went on. But long enough for Job to be in misery that only those who have suffered long term can identify with. Job could have walked away from God early on. But he just wouldn't let go of God. As Walter Brueggemann might say, he refused to leave the dance floor until the dance was done. You know, he's like these um, athletes that sprain their ankle in a race and somehow make it even with the help of others. Um, except it wasn't nearly as pretty and there's nobody in the stands cheering him on. It was ugly and he was alone. And as the deafening silence from heaven dragged on and on, Job remained steadfast. Now see, here's the great difference between us and Job. Job was hanging on to the Lord for all he's worth. You may feel like your hands are slipping. Job had no conception of this, but we do. It's not about you holding on to Jesus. He's holding on to you. And he's only going to let you go so far, and he's going to say, this far and no more. If you really belong to me, I'm not letting you take that final step away from me. And he reels you in. After Job and his friends fell silent, a young man stepped forward to speak for God. Did Elihu speak for God? Not perfectly, but he spoke better than anyone else at this point. Let's meet him in uh, Job 32, 1. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. We give up, Job. You think you're hot stuff. We know good and well you've sinned. Then Elihu, the son of Barachel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. One of the great things my dad left me with was the expression, that burned me up. That burned me up, you know. And all of you know what that's like. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer. Although they had declared Job to be in the wrong, couldn't prove it. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. Very respectful thing to do. For the first time in all of history, the world belongs to the young. We don't know about waiting to speak until you have gained wisdom. Look, with good reason, Jesus, young man, Paul, uh, not Paul, but Paul's disciple, Timothy. Paul was probably a relatively young man as well when the Lord saved him. Mary, maybe one of the greatest people in all of Scripture. Don't go overboard with Mary, but don't underdo her greatness. 
young, trusting God, but Elihu held back, and nobody could say anything that made any sense. And when Elihu saw that the that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. Now you might get the impression that Elihu was upset. That would be a correct impression. I mean, four texts we have heard him say that Elihu, the text tells us Elihu burned with anger. And what we're going to hear from Elihu is not spot on theology, but it definitely moves us in the right direction. I've got to be honest with you. I have said, just like every commentary I have ever read, up until Ash points out some of the things that he does, Elihu's no different from the others, so I don't get this. But you know what? He is different. And and one of the things you'll talk about in home group is this. He gets a genealogy. That's a big thing. He gets a family history stated about him. That's a big thing in the Old Testament. A big thing. And and then look at what he says. If you you start with the perspective perspective that this man is going to make some sense, it becomes much easier to, to see what he's saying. Surely you have spoken in my ears, he's talking to Job. And I have heard the sound of your words. You say, I am pure without transgression. I am clean and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasion against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. Elijah pretty much quotes Job word for word, and he's essentially saying, you've made me a spectacle. Everybody looks at me, and they laugh, and they say, what have you done to to create this issue that you have, or this suffering, to bring on this suffering? His response to Job is, First of all, Elihu will have none of it. He's not, he is not going to listen to Job's complaints. His response, though, differs from his three friends. Uh, verse 12, behold, in this you are not right. Now, later, I don't think this verse is in the text. That, I mean, in our, oh, it's going to be on the screen today, and we're going to, but, but later in this chapter, Elihu says, Job, I want to defend you. Give me a reason. I I want to justify you. But you're speaking so wrongly about God. You are not right. I will answer you. For God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him saying, He will answer none of man's words. For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. Now remember, Elihu, nobody here had any sense of Scripture. Nothing had been written at this point. They had no sense of the Holy Spirit. They did understand that God gives understanding, but not in the way that we know that a person of the Trinity makes God's word come alive. So Elihu is going to say God speaks in two ways. And you need to understand that. Job's friends, now Elihu is quite different in this. Job's friends have said, Job, you sinned and thus 
you're suffering. You're getting your just desserts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I had suspicions about you, and now God has confirmed my suspicions about you. Elijah says, Job, you have suffered, and in your suffering, you have misrepresented God in your response. You have, because of your suffering, you sinned in your response. You've misrepresented God. You've said, God, you have no right to do this to me. And if I could just, if somebody would just come along, I would argue my case with you and win. It essentially is what Job is saying. I would do that. But there's a big difference in saying to someone, you know, your suffering is an indication of your sin. And you have suffered and you have sinned in your response to your suffering. Get a hold of yourself. See, that may be where some of you are today. It's not that sin brought on your suffering. But your suffering has been the trigger for sin to form in your heart and mind. When we're hurting and angry, questioning God, even if we don't allow the words to come out, I went a long time before I ever looked at the heavens and said, God, what are you doing? But it was in my heart a long time before those words ever came out. When we are in that place, we want friends who will enter into our sorrow and hurt with us while we're hurting. But sometimes we may need a strong word from a brother or a sister defending God's honor. Since we prefer comfort from our friends, and, 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 and rightly so, we're told in the New Testament, are we not? Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. It's so interesting to me the way Scripture is structured, how God says, do not look for uh, Praise and honor for let another man praise you, not your own lips. Don't ever look for praise and honor from other people. And then he says, encourage, build up. My goodness, it's all through Scripture. Build others up. And sometimes Paul is just extravagant in his praise of servants of God in the New Testament. God knows who we are on both cases. He knows that we're desperately sinful. And if we allow ourselves, we'll say, hey, look at me. It's all about me. And yet, he also knows that we need the encouragement and to be built up by our brothers and sisters. Sometimes we need a strong word defending God's honor. So, Instead of our friends doing that for us, let's receive this rebuke from Elihu. He continues in chapter 33, verse 15. And, and he's saying, here's the way God speaks to you, both in your conscience and in suffering. He didn't have the word and the Holy Spirit, so he, <coughs> he, he comes in this way. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds. And this feels completely different. See, at first it feels like Zophar saying that. I was terrified. Was it Zophar or Bildad? I can't remember which one it was. And the Lord came to me and a, you know, a specter came to me and I'm, I'm so, but he's, but it sounds a lot alike, but there's a difference. 
while slump, while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings. Aren't your most difficult times in the night, either as you're going to sleep or especially if you wake up earlier than you're supposed to and you're sort of in that half dream, half awake state and crazy things come to your mind? Elihu is saying that's your conscience. Now, we might think of that a little differently, but he's dealing as best he can with what he has. He terrifies them with warnings that he may turn aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. It's a graphic description and one in which I know some of you at least could identify. You may think that God is against you in such a moment, but the reality is that in Jesus, God is more for you than you could possibly imagine in that precise moment. Sarah, could you get your sister to be quiet, please? Danielle, come on. Some of you have heard, and wow, what great timing. What great timing for Callie. Yeah. Is there an interpreter? Well, here's the interpretation from C.S. Lewis. You've, some of you have seen maybe this famous quote from Lewis from his book, The Problem of Pain. The human spirit will not even begin to try to surrender self-will as long as all seems to be well with it. Now, error and sin both have this property, that the deeper they are under the surface, the less their victim suspects their existence. They are masked evil. Pain, on the other hand, is unmasked. Unmistakable evil. Every man knows that something is wrong when he is being hurt. Something's wrong. We can rest contentedly in our sins, but pain insists upon being attended to. And then that famous quote, God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Lewis only thought he had known pain when he pinned Those words are penned, for those of you north of the Mason-Dixon, from there. When his wife, Joy, died several years later, he was crushed beyond what he could have anticipated. I think I mentioned this, maybe even in this series, the the movie Shadowlands, the um, Anthony Hopkins version where he plays C.S. Lewis, and his wife dies, and you just follow this this is heart-wrenching. She dies, and then he's going on with his life and his stepson. And you're you know, you're you you've you've dealt with your emotions, and they're up in the attic, 
And there's a scene. It is just a miracle. Saw that movie in the theater. It's a miracle that I didn't go. I mean, everything welled up within me as his pain and agony is expressed in the most visceral moment that you can imagine. So when he wrote these words, he didn't know pain yet at that level, but it was just as true before as it was after and just as true after as it was before then. When God crushes us, he has our attention. Only then can we fully learn who we are, who he is. And when we know God in his holiness and we know ourselves and our sinfulness, then we find in Christ just a measure of true clarity about all of this that in time may lead to much fuller meaning and purpose than we had previously known. If we buy into the world's philosophy that this life is all about you be realizing your full potential, and in fact, it's even more than that. It's about enjoying life, enjoying the journey, smelling the roses on the way, and all of these things, and nothing wrong with that phrase. I'm just saying, if, if it becomes our philosophy of life, then we get really messed up. Jonathan, my stepson, um, is a filmmaker, and he's with some really interesting people. This weekend, a month ago, he was with a whole bunch of people who are at the top of their game. And he was talking to me on the phone. We were talking about, he said, it's really great this this um, this conversation we were having. And, and here was the question amongst all of these artists. And, and again, these are people at the absolute top of the game. Bela Fleck was one of them. He stayed in his home. If you know that name, if you're in the bluegrass at all, you know that name. He's probably the best banjo player in the world. And, and here was this conversation. What is more important for you to give your life in the service of others or to be all that you can be and thus bless the world in that way. And Jonathan said there were maybe a couple of people who were absolute committed believers who said, yes, give your life in the service of the Lord and in the service of mankind. And there were people on the other who said, no, the way that you bless the world is being the best that you can be. And then you can make contributions. And then there were a bunch right in the middle. And we were talking about it. I said, you know, he was taught. I said, that's an interesting place, the Northwest. You know, there's this faux community. It's this phony community. Everybody thinks that they're so into one another, but they're really into themselves. And he said, exactly. That's exactly the way it is. And you know what? Gosh, we're all like that. We always have been. But we think we deserve it at a level that very few people in history have. And you know what pain does? You know what suffering does? It reminds us. It's not about that. It's not about me. 
It's not about my desires, my fulfillment. You know how many times I hear that? I wouldn't think God would want me to be unhappy. I know that you want to be all that you can possibly be, and for your loved ones, of course. But if that's the case, suffering, difficulty, hardship has no purpose, no meaning. But when you suffer in view of the cross, and when you come face to face with God, even as he rebukes you, even as God rebukes you, You will know love at levels you've never known before. The first part of suffering is never pleasant, though. Verse 19. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen and his bones that were not seen, stick out. Verse 19 says that man is rebuked with pain on his bed. I mean, what had Job done to deserve this uh, this obscene amount of suffering? For starters, just the fact that he was born into Adam's family was enough for God to destroy him. But that's not what's happening here. We're sinful people, yes, and all pain is a result of the fall. But Elihu's words have the familiar ring, even though I'm sure he didn't mean them in the same way as the writer of Hebrews that we studied last week in chapter 12, where the father disciplines every one of his children, not only for corrective measures, but also for instruction and to prevent us from falling into sin as well. In the end, though, unless something is done about our sin, we cannot stand before a holy God as Job has rightly and repeatedly acknowledged in his complaints to God. Elihu gets toward the heart of the matter in verse 22. His soul draws near the pit and his life to those who bring death. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousands to declare to man what is right for him, and he is merciful to him and says, deliver him from going down into the pit, I have found a ransom. Hallelujah. That's a good word. He didn't have any idea what he was saying. But we know exactly what he was saying. When Job had asked for a mediator, he was asking for an angel or maybe for God to have a conversation with himself and come to his senses and and correct this wrongness, wrong thing that had been done to him. Elijah was clearly thinking about an angel. But there is spectacular gospel truth in these verses pointing out our need for someone to take our place in death, a ransom, if you will. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul was not always Jesus' apostle, apostle, his messenger, his sent one. Paul was known as Saul before he met Jesus. And he was like Job's friends, fully invested, and Job himself, fully invested in the law or the system of the law that says if you keep commands of God outwardly or in a manner in which you 
compare favorably, favorably to others around you, then you will make yourself acceptable to God. Saul did not know the depths of his sin until Jesus blinded him. And he called the Pharisee of Pharisees to follow him. From that moment, the Apostle Paul understood that Jesus had stood between him and a holy God absorbing all of the wrath that was rightly directed at Paul because of his sin. Jesus was that ransom for Paul and for Job and for all who will believe that he died in their place. In our suffering, we have opportunity to know the full benefit of this truth. Jesus died for sinners. Jesus died for me. In the strangest of ways, even though Job failed to trust God when his world was rocked to the core, He foreshadowed the loneliness and the estrangement and the pain that Jesus would know in the garden and on the cross when God turned away from Jesus because he was bearing our sin as he died in our place. The beautiful perspective that's hinted at in Job is ours in view of the cross. They didn't really know what they were saying. We know exactly what was being said. Though the men in our story spoke so much better than they knew, they had no idea how spectacularly God would answer all of the questions in Job through Jesus. As we will see next week, Job didn't get any answers. Not the answers that he wanted, really. But as 1 Peter tells us, it was for our benefit that the Old Testament Prophets wrote and experienced much of the pain that they did. And God's presence, we will find, is enough for Jesus. I mean, for for Job. And it's enough for you. Some of you don't know how long your days are on this earth. And there is so much to leave on this earth when you go. Some of you are just waiting for the call. That a loved one has gone on to be with the Lord or not. That's difficult. Some of you have endured the extreme emotional pain of someone that you love very dearly walking away from you. Whether you're 18, 12, and your parents split up. 18, when your boyfriend or girlfriend says, I I just can't do this any longer. Or you're 40, and someone says, I don't love you anymore. Again, there's just not time to talk about all the suffering. But if you're in Jesus, God is for you. And that's better than anything you could ever know. This morning, we're going to close with Paul's testimony.
to Jesus' great sacrifice on the behalf of all who believe. And as we read portions of 1 Timothy 1 and 2, please just allow the joy in Paul's heart to wash over you. Paul writing from prison, not knowing his future. 2 Timothy, he knew his future, wrote with the same joy, although the sorrow and the difficulty of suffering crept in in his his writing. But let's allow these words to bring peace to our heart and praise to our lips. Would you please stand as I read from 1 Timothy 1. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful appointing me to his service because I was worthy of all people to have the... No, that's not what verse 13 says. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God who is God and we are not, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And would you lift your voices and quote with me 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony. Let's go out this week thinking about what we've heard today. Uh, Let me read to us from Psalm 18. The psalmist talks about suffering in a lot of the same ways and also about redemption. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, and the snares of death confronted me. In my distress I called upon the Lord, to my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones of coals and fire, and he sent out his arrows and scattered them, and he flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath. From your nostrils. He sent me from on high, and he took me, and he drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. 
They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Go forth in that knowledge this week, church.